Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Thank you to my colleague, Doug Mace. Thanks to him, I have already checked an item off of my bucket list. I was part of a choir. <laughs> and because we are trying to raise funds to pay off our new building, I would be amiss if I didn't share with you that the Loma Linda University Pastors Choir is now available for weddings. <laughs> birthdays, child dedications, and any other things you might need us for. It's been eight years for me, and as, if you look around at those of us who have the pleasure of serving you in this congregation, the time we've been here varies. Whether it's eight years, or five years, or 15 years, or six months, or 22 years, I think around the table, we would all say that what inspires us and moves us most about being part of this team is that we are always being called back to keep the first things first, to keep our focus where it needs to be, the early church had a phrase, I think, that aptly describes that philosophy. They used to say that any gathering that seeks to glorify Christ must commence and conclude in doxology. And so I want to just take the briefest of moments to ask you with me, to orient our minds to the reason why we are here, to ground ourselves once again in His grace, and to experience His presence anew in those pews that have been transformational for so many generations of Adventist Christians. And the way I want to do that is by having you reflect upon the words of that old hymn. That old hymn that was sung at the beginning of the worship service, that old hymn that reminded us it's time to enter in doxology. Praise God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, you creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Let us pray. 
we praise you. We praise you, God, because it is good and right to do so. We praise you because we recognize that our plans and celebrations mean nothing if they are devoid of your presence. And so we would invite you today to linger with us for the briefest of moments as we consider what you are doing in this community, as we celebrate what you have done, and as we look forward with breathless expectation to what you will do. We praise and pray in the name of the one who knows our name, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Church, it's almost impossible to read Paul's last epistle without mist gathering in our eyes. In the book, that letter to Second Timothy, he reflects upon 30 years of evangelistic ministry. And as you peruse the pages undoubtedly, a lump begins to form in your throat and knots begin to twist around in your tummy. It's only four short chapters, but in that span, Paul has been able to seamlessly coalesce two pictures. The one of an athlete dedicated and courageous as a soldier, and the one of a lonely old minister. Looking up at the sky through a little hole in his dungeon, missing deeply his community and his friends, wanting just some closeness. That's not, however, what I find most fascinating about the epistle. Rather, it is the fact that Paul could have chosen to spend those precious moments pen in hand doing a myriad of things. How easy it could have been to reflect on the road traveled, to look backwards, that is, Instead of, that, of doing that, however, Paul does what we have become so accustomed to doing in this church, Sabbath after Sabbath. He doesn't look backwards. He looks upward. And he could have written about a lot of things. That's why the letter is a bit disorienting. We love to highlight each other's achievements. Undoubtedly, Paul could have talked about the congregations he erected. He could have mused about the weddings he officiated on, the funerals he performed, the child dedications, and the stacks and stacks of sermon series he preached. But instead, Paul chooses to look upward. 
and he reminds his dear co-laborer of the most important thing. This is indeed, after all, his last will and testament to the church, to his church. It's disorienting. It's disorienting because it is but human nature to highlight our accomplishments. I mean, we list them in a litany. We craft these wonderful plaques and erect monuments. But Paul, Paul looks upward. Today, I want to invite you to huddle with me as we read that last challenge that the apostle to the Gentiles gives to his friend. Come with me to the second letter that Paul writes to Timothy. The fourth chapter, as we inhabit, verses 2 to 5. If I had to summarize it all, I would say, church, that as we Seventh-day Adventists remember today our great disappointment, Paul calls us to celebrate great appointments. And so he writes, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Not preach a word, not preach your word, preach the word. As my children often remind me, words have power. That's why the ancient Jews took words so seriously. The command to abstain from taking the Lord's name in vain or from oaths isn't just to keep ourselves from annoying the proclivities and propensities of the people around us. No, it's because the Jews believed that to speak a word was to create a new reality to call into existence something new, something unthinkable, something unimaginable. Well, sit in your pews. In that pew that has become so familiar to you, Sabbath after Sabbath, and think for a moment, if you will, about words. Week after week, my family and I sit right there. And week after week, we have the reality, the opulence of the gospel come to exhibit new and exciting beginnings. Think about how many times you have spent sitting in those pews being enriched with deeper understandings of God's grace. And with a wider vision of God's mercy. 
words matter. But the Apostle Paul challenges Timothy to not just preach any word or rather any collection of words. He invites him to preach the word because Paul knows that when the gospel is preached, we preached, we begin to participate in an incarnational reality. That is true apostolic succession. The idea that the same word that walked around the highways and byways of Galilee now walks around Wood's walkway. That the same word that came to Paul on the Damascus road can now be heard as we meander down Barton Road. Speak the word. It's almost as if Paul is looking at timid Timothy and telling him, I know, I know that the challenges are great. I know that the world is vociferous. Speak Jesus and Jesus crucified. Speak the word. And percolating in your mind probably is the idea well, how do I do that? So I'd like to submit to you this afternoon that there are four ingredients, four ingredients by which individuals and the priesthood of all believers can live up to your great appointment. So let's analyze those, shall we? Be prepared in season and out of season. So here's the truth. We pastors love this verse because it gives us just the perfect excuse to come to your home at any time, particularly when you're cooking. <laughs> so we'll knock at the door and you'll open and you'll see us, and we've tried to do this in this church, and you'll have one question and one question only, did I do anything wrong? Because the pastor's here to visit me. Have I sent my tithe? I think I'm okay. See, I often thought that this particular invitation that Paul extends to Timothy has to do with this unmitigated desire to just preach the gospel at all times to all people, regardless of their personal circumstances. But that's not what Paul means. John Stott, the great theologian and former rector of All Souls Church in England, when thinking about this particular passage, says that the invitation is less about the hearers and more about the preacher. Like a physician who is on call, he is invited to administer those salvaging and saving words found in the gospel whenever needed. And so... I think that the word and the idea that Paul was trying to convey was be steady. Be steady. Be consistent. Church, it's true. It's true that our culture is constantly shifting. 
We are constantly in motion, constantly trying to discover and appropriate the newest fad. And to that milieu, Paul invites his co-worker to steadiness. I think nobody embodies the idea of steadiness more than Greg Popovich. Greg Popovich is the coach of the San Antonio Spurs. He has been at the helm of that organization for 25 years. During that time, he has won a few gold medals and five NBA championships. What I couldn't understand as a Lakers fan is why Popovich was so deeply beloved and admired across the Southwest. And then I read it. I read the story. Not of success, not of victories, not of recognition, but about steadiness. The year was 2011, and the San Antonio Spurs were devastated. Pop called the team together for its customary meal, and they shared not wanting to eat. They walked into that Italian restaurant in Miami Beach. Tears, tears streaming down the faces of these professional athletes. Regret, regret as they replayed time and time and time again the events that had transpired just a few hours ago. Ray Allen, a shooting guard for the Miami Heat, had scored a buzzer-beating desperation three which with which the game was to be sent into overtime. The shock of that moment had proven too great for Pop's team to overcome, and their hopes at winning an NBA championship had now vanished. The whole team looked at its leader, and as they saw him expecting to know what to do, well, let Manu Ginobili, who played 16 years for the Spurs, who recently was inducted into the Hall of Fame, to tell it for you. Ginobili says, we were devastated. And then, then Pop spoke. This rough man that had pushed us through the whole season spoke. He said, fellas, we've won a lot together. And today we lose together. But above anything else, we are going to eat together. Ginobili says that with that simple sentence, a wave of calm began to descend upon the players, and they knew, even if it was for the briefest of moments, 
that everything, everything would be all right. Words have power. There's a book that I wish I could take with me to a deserted island. It's a book written by Eugene Peterson entitled Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. And Peterson reminds us of the power that words have a power that I see on display Sabbath after Sabbath from this very pulpit, a power that has been stewarded for 22 years in ways that continue to move me deeply. Peterson writes about his first invitation to pastor a church. He says that he spent time pouring over commentaries, preparing his message, learning pithy anecdotes and quotable quotes that his congregation could take with them. But then he had to make the leap from the book, from the world of books, to the preaching of the word. This was Peterson's experience. Well, first, first, first there was Matt Erickson. You see, Matt would always fall asleep in church. He would always make it through the first few verses of Amazing Grace, but as soon as the preacher started to speak, Matt was out. I feel it's necessary to give you the disclaimer they do in movies. Any similarities with events current or fictional is purely intended for your entertainment. <laughs> but Matt wasn't the only one. Oh, no, there was, well, there was Red. Red Belzer was his name in that last pew in the back angry little teenager would sit and try to hide from the pastor. Ooh, but Peterson saw him. He saw him thumbing through his comic book. And then there was Lou. Lou Kohlberg, blessed with a beautiful bass voice. How disappointed Peterson was when he would see him passing notes to his friends on the latest tips on the stock market. The only person, the only person that gave Peterson any hope was a woman. A woman that would sit close to the front and furiously take notes of the sermon in shorthand. Peterson relieved, finally believed that there was somebody, somebody that truly understood the power of the word. Until he figured out that this woman had recently divorced from her husband and was actually preparing for a new career. At that moment, as all hope was lost, Peterson heard the same invitation 
that Paul is extending both to Timothy and to us. Steady, Eugene. Steady. If you saw our pastoral staff week after week, you would know. You would know that we are quick to share each other's victories. We're even quicker to mourn with each other when we lose. But through it all, the one constant, the one constant is our coach. Our coach who calls and says, team, we might lose some, and we might win a lot together, but today, today we're going to eat together. Steady, Randy. Steady. But what is needed isn't just steadiness and stability. Paul tells Timothy that more is still required of those who would accept the, their calling, the calling to this great appointment. Be prepared to correct, rebuke, and encourage. Be prepared to correct, rebuke, and encourage. Let's face it, church, we love the correct and rebuke part, don't we? I mean, I grew up in a church that loved the correct and rebuke part. But Timothy, Timothy receives this notion that more is needed. It isn't just correction or rebuke when we are failing, it's encouragement. And it's this idea to speak into those spaces at the correct time and in the correct manner that defines those who would accept their true appointment. Those who are called to do what, what Timothy is being invited to do. Steward the gospel. Steadiness is needed, but relevance is also required. I don't mean relevance in the way we think of relevance often. I don't mean relevance in the music we choose to play at our service or the way we decide to dress. I don't mean relevance in the way the liturgy is to be performed. What I mean by relevance is this gift to recognize stories, stories that are happening in a dungeon, stories that are happening at the foot of a cross, stories that are happening at an empty tomb as our own. The hero of homileticians, and I'm going to coin that term, Randy, as an alternative to your prince of pulpiteers, the hero of homileticians, Fred Craddock, talks about relevance in this way. He says that when you hear this story, this story that enriches your ears and get 
what he calls the joy of recognition, the gospel is being preached. I'm not a Spurs fan. Thank God. <laughs> I'm not from Texas. Sorry. I'm a man. Can't help it. I'm Hispanic. Superficially, I have my own identity. And you might identify differently. You might be a woman. You might be African-American. You might not really care about basketball, but tell me, tell me if on a Sabbath, Sabbath, any given Sabbath, you sit in those pews and you hear the message and you say, that's my story. The jolt and the shock of recognition be relevant, Paul says. Again, Fred Craddock. Craddock exemplifies this in a story told to him by Lou Silverman. Silverman is a professor of Old Testament studies at Vanderbilt University, and he shares the concept of the Lamed Vov. This idea of a person in any generation where there are Jews together that will carry the sins and the guilt of his people. Here's the kicker, though. The Lamed Vov never knows if he or she is to fulfill that role. And then Craddock moves us. He moves us to the pogroms in Poland. The men had all been exiled or murdered. And only children and women remained. except for him. He was around 30, and you could find him playing in the dirt with the kids. He was a big, as big as a man, but had the mind of a child. He would play around, and as he played, the women in the pogrom were reminded of what they had lost. And so one day, angered and frustrated, they began to chase him. They chased him until he ran out of breath, and when he stopped, they began to throw rocks at him. One of those rocks hit him in, on the temple, and he slumped to the ground. The women came and surrounded him, and as they did, as they saw this man and child on the floor, the jolt of recognition, they muttered in hushed tones. He had no beauty or calmliness to him. And when we saw him, we would turn our faces. But by his stripes, 
we are healed. And the anger and the frustration disappeared. That's our story. Relevance. Steadiness, relevance. Paul's not done with Timothy, however. Oh, no. He includes a third ingredient that we must add if we are to answer to our great appointment. Patience. Patience. Benedict of Nursia, the father and former of Western monasticism, talks about the patience that is needed to garden. He says that we must dig deep holes and allow the roots to sink in. Patiently waiting for the moment when the shoots will run towards the light. Patience. Maybe you don't like gardening or Benedict of Nursia. Because when I come and think about patience, the image that comes to my mind is, well, the Dallas Cowboys. It's not because the Cowboys haven't won in 25 years. It's because there is a man in that organization that perfectly exemplifies patience. Tom Landry. Landry was a gifted athlete. He migrated to New York to play for the Giants and the Yankees. And after his career was over, he spent time being an assistant coach for the Jets. Tex Schramm, the general manager of the Cowboys at the time, had this group of misfits and outcasts, this fledgling organization that nobody wanted. And so he decided to call his friend Tom. Tom knew something. He understood well that you could take the boy out of Texas but you can't take Texas out of the boy. And so he called Tom and said, won't you come and coach? Tom was obsessive in his preparation. He cared about the craft of coaching. You could see him in his office at 4 a.m. in the morning. Lights on, film playing. And within a few years, Tom had managed to transform this band of misfits and outcasts into America's team. He won two Super Bowl rings, 
And then in 1989, as a new owner took charge of that franchise, Tom went three and 13. He was unceremoniously let go. The people in Dallas were in an uproar. This was, after all, their beloved coach. They wanted to force Jerry Jones to sell the team or at least rehire Landry. Newspapers were, being, were penning articles that were lambasting the organization for not being the picture of class, resilience, relevance, and steadiness. And then a reporter went to Landry and said, Coach, how do you feel? A trademark fedora and jacket. Landry looked into the microphone and said, Coaching the Cowboys has been my greatest honor. The reporter asked what he meant. And Landry said, a coach, a coach is one who tells you what you do not want to hear. A coach is one that sees that which you don't want to see so that you may become the person that you always dreamt about being. But that takes time. It takes patience. Boss, it takes 44 years. Don't you go anywhere. Because as we sit in these pews, we recognize that if God is patient with us, ought we not to be patient with one another? Tom Landry might call it coaching. Church, I call that spiritual formation. Has it ever happened to you? that you're sitting in those pews and you're hearing this message and the gospel is coming alive and you say to yourself, that's my story. And then you catch a glimpse. A glimpse not of who you are, but of who God has called you to be. It's been eight years for me, as I said. And I spent most of those eight years learning, listening, marveling. I love this church. I love this church because it is a church that communicates the gospel in the only way that we can, using the rhetoric of excess. We use that opulent language that enriches us and causes us to dream. Even as we are led 
by a presence that is steady, relevant, and trust me, I know, very patient. But that's not all. There's a fourth ingredient. With great patience and careful instruction. Careful instruction. Words have power. But let's face it, folks, the English language is weird. I talk to my colleague, Adriana Pereira, about this all the time. English is weird if you're not a native speaker. I mean, other languages, you learn the rules, you learn the grammatical construction, you can speak the language. Oh, not English. English will tell you stuff like this. All right, folks, the plural of goose is geese. And then the teacher will ask, what's the plural of moose? Somebody said moose is wrong. The plural of moose is moose. It's a strange language. And so I was thumbing through commentaries to try to define that last ingredient that defines those who are to accept this great appointment. People like you and me. So we've talked about steadiness, relevance, patience. Again, John Stott, trying to describe that fourth attribute, says, ah, thoughtful. Randy, I love John Stott, but I think he's wrong. <laughs> you see, thoughtful is an adjective. And an adjective describes a noun. It refers to the part of a whole. I mean, let's face it, you can be thoughtful and thoughtless, sometimes within the same day. So I don't think Paul is telling Timothy, be thoughtful. I think Paul is telling Timothy, exhibit thoughtfulness. Because thoughtfulness is a noun. It goes to the core of who you are. It is your very identity. I, I struggled a lot with deciding if I was going to share this story. It was on the cutting floor until 7.30 this morning because it's not a story of Greg Popovich or Fred Craddock. Christ plays in 10,000 places or the Dallas Cowboys. It's my story. But if you listen to it, you might be surprised 
when you find the shock of recognition. Because I'm willing to bet it's your story too. It was a few years ago, and COVID was raging. It had shredded every single link that we had, relationally, professionally, academically. And I wasn't doing well. Nobody knew. Let's face it. We all become very adept at creating these facades that we want to share with our community, even communities that we love as much as I love this one. But there was a facade. You might not have seen it. You might have seen me and thought, man, that is an eloquent guy. At least I hope that's what you're thinking. <laughs> but I wasn't doing well. And nobody saw or knew the real me, except Linda. But I was so afraid of accepting. I was afraid of how my colleagues would react. I was afraid of what it meant if I left this calling that I care about so much. I was petrified. I was frightened, timid Timothy. Finally, as most wives that are smarter than their husbands do, Linda said, you need to talk to someone. And I called my boss. And he picked up. Thoughtfulness. I told him, Randy, I'm not doing well. I, I'm not in a good space. I think I need to leave ministry. I think at least I need to take some time off. And I was expecting to hear from him, well, have you, have you thought about who's going to replace you? What about your workload? Have you given that to someone? When can we expect you back? Let's make sure we call the conference and the HR department. After all, that's what a thoughtful person would do. But those who accept the great appointment. Don't think thoughtfully. They exhibit thoughtfulness. And that day, that day you told me, take as much time as you need. And you know how private I am. And that's all you needed to say. Because every day my wife would get a text message from you saying, 
how he, how is he doing? And we know our senior pastor for a lot of things. We know his love of sports, his love of great books, his passion for preaching. We also know that he's probably hating this. But that thoughtfulness shifted Randy from becoming my boss to my pastor. And for 22 years, ministry in Loma Linda University Church has been done by mixing gracefully those four ingredients of the great appointment and adding one clarion call. One phrase that is as endemic to our culture as growing disciples. And that is this. In this church, under that man's leadership, it has always been not me, but thee. That is our great appointment. Let us pray. We thank you. you, Father, for steadiness. We thank you for hearing our story in ways that are relevant. We thank you for the power of words. We thank you for the gift of patience. But more important, we thank you because your thoughtfulness is exhibited in our community, day after day. We pray that you go with us today and evermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.